You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Let's take a minute to pray. Father, we're thankful that you give us an opportunity to build our lives on you. And even as we think about mothers today and the heritage from which we've come and the backgrounds and the training that we have received in our families, um, we just want to thank you that you have led us to this point, that we can build our lives on you. Thank you for your written words that uh, we can dig into and try to understand uh, not only how faith was uh, realized in the lives of other people throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but we can see how those truths are applied to our lives today. And uh, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, will teach us today as we dig deeper into this passage and into this book of Galatians together as a faith community. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I also want to say Happy Mother's Day to those of you and family members have come. Michelle and I have the privilege of having both of our mothers still with us and... Uh, members of this church, my mom, Kay Dirksen, is here, and Michelle's mom, Marianne Petrescu, can't be here because of some COVID-related things in her building, but that's kind of par for the course in our day, isn't it? Today's passage uh, is a challenging one. Thank you, Keith, for giving this one to me. Um, it, it does have two mothers as key Characters, and we'll, we'll dig into that, but we're going to read through the passage. Um, try and stay with me. We're going to put it on the screen, and I'm reading it in the Common English Bible. Um, so just kind of follow on the screen, and if you get a little bit confused, I will try and uh, help with some of that confusion uh, during our time together. But I will read it for you. Just follow along. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to chapter 5, verse 6. Paul speaking, Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? It's written that Abraham, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The son by the slave woman was conceived the normal way, but the son by the free woman was conceived through a promise. These things are an allegory. The women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to slave children. This is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And she corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem because the city is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. It's written... Rejoice, barren woman, you who have not given birth. Break out with a shout, you who have not suffered labor pains, because the woman who has been deserted 
will have many more children than the woman who has a husband. Brothers and sisters, you are children of the promise, like Isaac. But just as it was then, so it is now also. The one who is conceived the normal way harassed the one who was conceived by the Spirit. But what does the Scripture say? Throw out the slave woman and her son, because the slave woman's son won't share the inheritance with a free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we aren't the slave woman's children, but we are the free woman's children. Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to the bondage of slavery again. Look, I, Paul, am telling you that if you have yourselves circumcised, having Christ won't help you. Again, I swear to every man who has himself circumcised that he is required to do the whole law. People who are trying to be made righteous by the law have been estranged from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness through the spirit of by faith. Being circumcised or not being circumcised doesn't matter in Christ Jesus. But faith working through love does matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul is communicating some tricky and challenging things in this passage, isn't he? To help us understand some of the concepts, let's look at some of the historical references that he makes here. Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was his actual firstborn son. Isaac was his second son. Ishmael was the son of Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. Her story can be found in Genesis chapter 16 and then a little bit later in chapter 21, verses 8 to 21. Isaac was Abraham's second son, but the firstborn of his wife, Sarah. We will not get into the complexities of polygamy in today's sermon. The Genesis 21, 8 to 21 account is worth a sermon in and of itself. We may need to ask Keith to dig into that chapter at some point. It is the first account of us seeing a woman give God a name. Elroy, the God who sees me. This story of Hagar and Ishmael and God's promise on them after they had been rejected and evicted from Abraham's family and lands is well worth considering. I think there are some great spiritual truths deep inside of that passage. Did you know that there is a direct connection between Ishmael and Islam, the Muslim religion? There are two main connections. In the Quran, the prophet Muhammad is considered a direct descendant of Ishmael and therefore a direct descendant of Abraham himself. And one of the key dividing points um, between Islam and Judaism, including the Judeo-Christian thought, is that, that in the Quran... 
Um, it was Ishmael that Abraham was going to sacrifice, not Isaac. In the Bible, it says that Isaac was the one that Abraham was going to sacrifice on Mount Moriah. This, as you can imagine, is a significant dividing point between the two religions. Sometimes you may say, well, what's really the difference between all these world religions? Well, this would be one of those points where they go in a very different direction. Uh, and the mount on which Abraham was to make his sacrifice of Isaac was Mount Moriah. That's Mount Moriah. You might recognize it as something else. The Jews believe that Mount Moriah is the mount on which Solomon had built his temple, or what is known today as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So for Jews, this mount is both where their ancestor Isaac was to be sacrificed um, and the location of their most historic religious site, Solomon's Temple. For Muslims, this same mount is the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the second most holy site in Islam. And you wonder why there's so much turmoil in that place. Have any of you ever walked uh, on the Temple Mount? Has anyone ever been? Yeah, there's quite a few of you, actually. Michelle and I have. We were rather oblivious youths at the time, uh, not aware of all of the historic uh, ten, uh, tension that was present there. We would kind of walk in one direction, uh, and people would be shouting us and telling us, turn around, you can't go there. So we'd turn around and kind of walk in the other direction, and other people would be shouting at us and telling us, you can't go in that direction. It felt a little bit like preparing for the sermon. Uh, all of these scholars were saying, no, this is what's true. No, this, no. No, no, from Islam, this is what's true. And this, it, it's a very complicated location. And some of these concepts are also very complicated. Well, Paul's point in introducing these names in this passage uh, was not to raise issues of Jewish and Islamic history. In fact, the prophet Muhammad um, would not come on to the scene of history until about 600 years after Paul himself. In Paul's mind, Hagar and her son Ishmael had nothing to do with other world religions. They were two figures in the Genesis record that he decided to make into an allegory so that is where we're going to go, to uncover what he was saying in his allegory. Now, warning, allegories can be very confusing, just as confusing as the opinions of scholars in historical and, re and religious perspectives. What is an allegory? An allegory is where you use characters, figures, or events in a narrative format. It can be written, it can be done through drama. It can be done through artistic expression. And they represent abstract ideas about current events or possible future events, usually with some moral teaching associated with the narrative. 
There are some very famous allegories in history. One that you might be familiar with would be John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which follows the journey of a young man named Pilgrim whose experiences are an allegory of what is experienced in the Christian life. Another famous one is Moby Dick, uh, written in 1851. It's where Herman Melville uses a story about a whaleboat and a captain who is obsessed with catching one particular white whale. And it represents the exploration and search for meaning. Then there's George Orwell's 1984. Any of you have to read that in high school? Yeah, I think a whole bunch of us did. We didn't necessarily enjoy it or understand what George Orwell was trying to say in 1948 when he wrote that book. But it was a description of Oceania and the Big Brother Society. Um, and he was looking at current society in his time just after the Second World War and if it carried on doing what it was doing, what it would look like in 1984. Some of us today might actually say that there's still a fair bit of big brother going on in society uh, here, even in Canada. There are many other famous allegories. C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, filled with all kinds of story and lots of moral and spiritual truth. J.R. Tolkien and uh, The Lord of the Rings, that kind of the use and abuse of power. A Christmas Carol. Did you know that A Christmas Carol is an allegory where Charles Dixon, uh, Dickens talks about uh, various characters and applies some of the things to a spiritual moral teaching. Aesop's Sables, that we could go on. I, too, have used narrative and stories to teach our children. We have two boys who are about two years apart, and then we have a space of seven years, almost seven years, and then we have two daughters. And with the boys, I would tell them stories about the black stallion. And later on with the girls, it was two characters that lived on a ranch. Their names were John and Joel. They never know where that ranch was or in what time frame in history that was. But in the evenings, they would, it would be story time before they went to bed, and I would just make up a story, either about the Black Stallion or about John and Joel. There were times in those stories that our kids would say, oh, Dad, that's just what happened to us today. They didn't quite realize that I was there that day. <laughs> And that I wasn't reading a story to them, but I was making it up. I was using narrative and story to explain spiritual principles and moral truths that they could kind of get a grasp on. The power of story. So let's turn back to our text here because this is not an English 11 class, right? Paul says that these two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, are an allegory representing the struggle that the Galatian church was experiencing at that time. Hagar represented those <clears throat> who continued to submit themselves um, to religious rites and practices 
as the way to salvation. Sarah represented those who accepted their salvation through faith. They were no longer bound to the religious rites and practices. Hagar represented Mount Sinai and, Paul adds, the then current city of Jerusalem and its focus on religious rites, like circumcision, and practices. Sarah represented the new Jerusalem, the promised kingdom that was not tied to a physical location, but represented something much bigger than any geographical location. So what was that relevance? How was that relevant to the Galatian believers? Well, as we have been seeing throughout this series, there were some strong Jewish religious teachers that were trying to convince the Galatian believers to conform to Jewish rites and practices in order to gain and maintain their salvation. Paul's big beef was this. Why would those of you who have been set free want to be enslaved again? Why would you exchange the prison of sin for the prison of religious rites and practices? It was, it was mind-boggling to Paul. And he was actually getting a little bit frustrated. Chris made some great points uh, last week. We, we choose... Uh, captivity out of fear. And sometimes it turns into addictions or patterns of sin or legalism. He asked, what do we turn to when we are stressed? And what do we turn to when we don't feel like we are pleasing God? The believers in Galatia were being enticed by these teachings by the Jewish members of their faith community. But why was it enticing to them? Paul was asking why. He was was actually starting to get a bit frustrated. Chris said it very gently. He said last week that that Paul was starting to use a fatherly voice, you know, compassionate. I think it was a little bit of the fatherly irritated voice as well that, "How, how can I get this into your head? Paul could not understand why slaves, either slaves to sin or slaves to religion, who have been set free would return to that slavery by choice. Why would someone exchange one slavery for another? It seems a bit ridiculous. Can you imagine a a prisoner at one of our BC penitentiaries? Have you been in the lower mainland? and driven close to Zero Avenue, and driven by some of those penitentiaries. I have some friends that have worked as chaplains there. Imagine a person completes their sentence, and they are released out of the penitentiary, and they they call a taxi, go over to the next penitentiary, and start knocking on the door, asking to be let back in to a different penitentiary. That would seem a little ridiculous to us. Well, um, there, there is something about our human nature that actually craves a bit of enslavement at times, or imprisonment. 
And that is another message that could very easily be developed to try and understand why we do those things. Imprisonment seems to have its benefits. It is a known and static environment. There are daily routines. It is mostly predictable, and it seems less dangerous than the world of freedom. You see, freedom has its costs, doesn't it? Living by faith is unpredictable, and it can be uncomfortable. Making love your highest value can put you into some pretty precarious positions. Grace isn't easy. When we live in the freedom purchased for us by Christ, we are not only free to receive his grace, but what happens? There's also an expectation that we need to, in turn, give God's grace to other people as well. And that's not so easy to do sometimes, is it? It's really easy to receive grace, isn't it? It can be very challenging for us to give grace. Uh, for those of you who have grown up in kind of a, in strict religion, you know that it's actually, it's actually a little more comfortable to judge other people from a distance than it is to get close to them and need to extend grace time and time and time again. Adhering to religious rites and practices has a certain sense of security to it. You know what is expected, and you live by it. A highly regulated environment means you don't have to make as many decisions in a day. They're already made for you by your religion. When you live in freedom, you, you actually have to make more decisions, and you have to take responsibility for them. Living by the Spirit, in freedom from the bondages of both sin and religious rites and practices, is actually not the easiest way forward. John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress that we mentioned is a good allegory of how challenging it can be to walk the walk of faith. Paul sums up his allegory uh, in the last verse of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5. He says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we aren't the slave woman's children, but we are the free woman's children. Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to the bondage of slavery again. Why was this so hard for the Galatians to understand? Why is it so hard for us to re- not to rely on religious rites and practices? We have been set free by Jesus. Set free from the bondage of sin. Set free from the bondage of religious rites and, package, and, and practices. In the next verses, Paul jumps into addressing the religious rite of circumcision. It seems quite clear that the Jewish believers who were causing such a kerfuffle in Galatia, kerfuffle is a very technical term, by the way, 
were fixated on one particular religious rite, that of circumcision. To them it was the mark of the true believer. When Keith and I talked about me preaching this passage, I told him I was not going to spend a lot of time on the concept of circumcision. Um, in essence, it was a Jewish male practice, but it, but it actually wasn't only used among Jews. It is found in Islam as well. It is found in ancient Egyptian history. It's found in different parts of Africa and, and Oceania as well. It's not just something that the Jews practiced. However, the Jews of the first century in Galatia seemed to be fixated on that one point. They believed it was a highest priority in that men who became followers of Jesus had to be circumcised in order to be considered true believers. Let me ask you this. What was the mark of a true believer when you were growing up? What was emphasized when talking about whether you were a believer, a follower of Jesus, or a Christian, or not? There are so many things from my childhood that I have actually questioned over the years. Maybe you have also questioned some of the things that you were taught as a child. Now, I have to be clear, I grew up right here in this church. Um, so some of you are my Sunday school teachers and taught me some of these things. Uh, our family has been part of this church since well, this building was built in 74. We arrived in 1970. And from a Penticton Alliance Church before that and Morden Alliance Church before that. In fact, attending church on Sundays, in my case, Sunday morning and Sunday evening, was one of the marks of a believer. If you were to ask someone, when I was a child in the 70s, you know, are you a Christian? Yep. What church do you go to? I don't go to church. Oh, then you're not a Christian. Like, you can't be a follower of Jesus and not go to church both Sunday morning and Sunday. If you only went Sunday morning, it was questionable whether your faith was really, I mean, were you really a believer? Yeah. Wednesday night, that's right, and then choir on Thursday, and then the boys were great on Monday night, right? And then youth on Friday. You get it. What was the mark of a believer when you were growing up? Does that seem as important to you now? What did Jesus consider the mark of a believer. Do we see anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus put circumcision at the top of the priority list? Mm, no, we don't actually see Jesus addressing that issue. What was one of the most common controversy, controversies during Jesus' ministry? Sabbath-keeping. Oh my, I think Jesus was more criticized for that um, and for what he did on the Sabbath than for anything else. For the religious Jews at the time, they were appalled that Jesus would heal somebody on the Sabbath, that he would do his work, 
as a healer on the Sabbath in a synagogue nonetheless. Like, how could he do that? Sabbath keeping was really high on their priority list. And Sabbath keeping for them was the mark of a true believer in Yahweh. For the Jews of Paul's time, especially in Galatia, circumcision was that mark of the believer. But what is the true mark of the believer, according to Paul? Thankfully, he tells us. Verses 2 to 6. Look, I, Paul, am telling you that if you have yourself circumcised, having Christ won't help you. And I swear to every man who is himself circumcised that he is required to do the whole law. All 600 and some laws that went with the law of Moses. You people who are trying to be made righteous by the law have been estranged from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness through the, faith, through the Spirit by faith. Being circumcised or not being circumcised doesn't matter in Christ Jesus. But, and here's the mark, faith working through love does matter. That's it. Faith working through love does matter. If you put your confidence in religious rites and practices to be made righteous before God, Paul is saying that you are actually estranging yourself from Christ. Relying on what we do to gain God's favor is actually um, estranging us from God himself, not bringing us closer to him. Ponder that for a minute. When we try and earn our salvation through what we do, we are actually moving ourselves further away from God. What does Paul clearly say is the mark of the believer? He says the mark of the believer in Christ Jesus is faith working through Love. Maybe you too have come from a religious background, like I have. Maybe you didn't come from a religious background. And if you didn't, what was your perspective on what made Christians Christians? Maybe what you perceived as marking them as religious people wasn't actually a very pleasant thing, was it? It wasn't necessarily complimentary. If you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you thought the people in the church were just, they were just a little weird. And some not just weird, but outright something else. What does faith working through love look like? What do I have to do to ensure that faith is working through love in my life? What rites and practices will show that faith is working through love in my life? You see what I'm doing there? I'm twisting it around again. I'm, I'm making it look like I have a certain number of things to do to make it look like my faith is being acted out in love, but that's not 
the way it is. We do not accomplish freedom in Christ. Jesus has given it to us as part of his grace. It is his gift to us. In the kingdom established by Jesus, we don't have cultural or religious markers to signify the new covenant of faith. We don't have any physical markers other than maybe in your baptism when you came out of the baptism water, that wet look, that may be a mark that you could say is a New Testament mark. The wet look that you have when you come out of the waters of baptism. One of Paul's main points as he preached the gospel throughout the known world at that time was that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is simple and that it manifests itself differently through the people that encounter Jesus. Paul did not expect people to become Jewish in their way of living. Now, some of you may know that Michelle and I served for a few decades in missions. We've studied missions. We've lived in other countries. We've made all the mistakes, I think, that missionaries make by trying to bring the gospel to another culture. We tried to do it without bringing our whole, all the baggage from our culture and our religious background into it, but we failed. And I'm sure some of you have seen the pictures of you know, believers or, or pastors in the mountains of Irian Jaya or in the Amazon jungle wearing a suit and tie to lead the church on a Sunday. And you go, did Jesus wear a suit and tie? Like, why, why are we imposing our cultural and background onto other people in other countries? It's really one point that has given missions a really bad name is because that same pathway of missions has been used to enculturate other people. Paul's point here is, Jesus and the simple gospel transforms people from the inside out, not from the outside in. So what marks have you added to the gospel in your life? That's one to think about. And as you go to your circles this week, that may be a good one to contemplate. In what ways have you put your trust in certain religious rites and practices rather than on God's grace? Have you exchanged one set of shackles for another? The shackles of sin for the shackles of religion? Paul said to the believers in Ephesians in chapter 2, You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something that you possessed. It's not something you you did that you can be proud of. The mark of a true believer of Jesus is simply this, faith working through love. In fact, I made a decision this week. I know what I want on my grave marker. Now, I have no plans on dying anytime soon. I, I would like to live a few more decades, and Michelle's given me the okay to live a few more decades, which is good. I really think I, what I'd like on that grave marker is this. His faith was evident in his love. 
And if Michelle could remember me like that, if my, if my kids and my grandkids could remember me like that, any of you who may still be alive at that time, if you could remember me like that, that would be rather fulfilling to know that the faith that I had was actually worked out in the love that I had for people around me. How do you want to be remembered? Would, other, would others say that you are marked by your faith in the way that you live out your life in love? If for some reason that is not the case, then know this. God's grace is full of do-overs. If for, if, if for some reason you have, you have emphasized a certain mark, a certain religious rite or practice as the mark of a believer, and that mark is not what Paul is saying here in this passage, then make a change. Change that mark in your mind. The evidence of the reality of the gospel in your life is faith expressing itself through love. Period. That's how you know if someone follows Jesus with their whole heart. Maybe you, you have exchanged the slavery of sin for the slavery of religious rights. Maybe without even knowing you have done it, you can change your focus. Don't focus on the religious rights and practices. Just put your focus back on Jesus and live like he did. His faith was shown in how he loved people. For me, one of the practical ways that I am learning to practice this is when I hear myself beginning to judge other people. When my mind starts to form judgment, that is when I am stopping myself and trying to put myself in that person's position, trying to understand why they may be doing what they're doing or saying what they are saying. I am learning to choose to suspend my judgment of others and to learn more about them. We are not called to perpetual religion. We are called to a life of faith that is abundantly evidenced through love. Join me in renewing my commitment Faith working through love as the thing that marks me as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, it is very evident through this passage that you know what you want to mark our lives. You have filled us with grace, and yet we tend towards slavery in one way or another. We, we tie ourselves to things that we can see and do, and we inhibit, actually, the work of your Spirit that wants to flow in faith and love into us and through us to the world around us. We are, we are a faith community that wants to have a positive impact in this city, the city of Kelowna, the central Okanagan, and throughout the Okanagan Valley, and beyond. We, 
We want to have a positive impact on the people around us. But our religion and our judgments uh, and some of the ways that we have done things isn't really attractive. And we ask instead that the attractiveness of your love flowing through us to other people will actually be attractive. We ask you, Spirit of God, to mark our lives with faith that expresses itself through love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.